Guys, I got to tell you, we are pretty pumped over here. We've got a little bit of a celebration going on. We were able to refinance uh, about $11 million property that we have in the Atlanta market. Uh, this was something that we've been working on for about four months, and we were able to close it four hours or so before the end of business on the last day of the year. And if we did not close that day, the terms of the loan would have completely changed changed and basically would have made the deal impossible to be able to do so really brought it together right at the last minutes If you are a business owner looking to grow your net worth, come check us out at Invest in Square Feet. We've got a number of programs to do exactly that. Come check us out, investinsquarefeet.com. Today, we are going to be talking to Alex Levine, who is the CEO of a startup called Regal.io. They've generated more than $3 billion in revenue for their customers. So Alex knows a thing or two about driving startup growth. Today, you're going to learn how to generate your first customers for your startup. Alex mentions how they originally had about a few hundred prospects that they were looking to be able to bring on board, and that ended up only being about 10 to 20 right type of prospects to be able to bring onto their platform. So we were at, we were hired by a business that was helping bring home services online that ultimately became, it's now known as Angie, but it owns Angie's List, Home Advisor, Handy, all these brands. And the idea was in that business to digitize all of home services. You didn't have to talk to a human being. And as we got bigger and bigger, we found actually that there were certain situations where it actually was better for all parties involved to connect human to human, have that personal touch. Even though it was an online business, take a moment and say, hi, who are you? What do you really want? Here's what we offer. And that was very contrary to the narrative we had been taught and very contrary to what most businesses were trying to do online. But we ended up finding out that a lot of these more considered businesses, so not retail, but banking, education, lending, healthcare, saw a similar thing that having an actual conversation between you and, and the consumer, you and the customer had a big impact for both. And they were all scrounging around trying to find the right way to do it. There wasn't really good technology for that. Most customer service technology was based on the idea of deflecting customer inbound, reducing interaction. Most marketing technology is based on the idea of just tell them something. Don't let them respond. Just send them a text message. Send them an email with what you want to tell them. So this was a different mode. And ultimately, that's where Regal sort of started was this idea that you wanted to treat your customer like royalty. You cared about actually using services as a differentiation and knowing as much as you could about what they were doing so that you could find the right moments to, to reach out and help and reach out and drive more value for that customer and figure out what channel to contact them on, what to say, so on and so forth. And so we have taken that position that there's still, it's very important in fact that you look at your contact center as a revenue generator, not a cost center, that there's still room for service as a differentiation online. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I'm sure that you guys have measured this and tracked this. Is there a correlation between the, I guess, the satisfaction level from a, a typical 
customer service experience compared to more of the personalized in-person route? Have you, do you have any measurements or tracking? To- yeah, so a lot of different ways of looking at it. For some of our company customers, it's life or death. So we serve healthcare a lot. And so as an example in healthcare, now there's an explosion of data about you and there's fewer doctors and nurses than ever before, in fact. And so that's a bad situation where there's a lot more about you and many fewer people to understand what's going on. And I think on average, and I'm gonna get the stat a little bit off, but it's under 10 minutes a year that Americans spend with a doctor, a year. So the ability for us now to programmatically understand all that data and use our system to help that brand engage the customer in the right moment. So if it's a diabetes patient and their insulin is spiking or something's going, their foot is showing hot spots, that's a moment you need to be able to engage with them and get them into a hospital immediately or get them into a, some kind of care immediately. That's, it's not just, is it a good customer experience or a bad one? Like you have to have a way of using the explosion, the exploding amount of data to still do something for that customer that's not possible otherwise. I think a second side of it is in, in a lot of interactions online now, what's happened is take SoFi as a customer. It's moved online and people love that. But when you're going to SoFi trying to get a loan or a student loan refinance, you're doing it on your cell phone. It's a tiny little screen. You can't understand much information. doesn't matter how good SoFi's technology is. It's not going to be able to get to the whole point. So what we find is people are frustrated by the experience. They don't want to call in and wait 10 minutes on a line. The emails they get are not helping them at all. So instead, if in that moment, when you see that they're frustrated and their behavior shows you that, you can engage them with a call that's branded now. So we have a technology that allows us to brand calls on cell phones. It says SoFi and you go, thank goodness, and you answer. And they go, hi, Alex, I see you're exactly at this point. This is exactly what's frustrating you. Let me help you if that's okay. Shoot, that's actually an enormous benefit to me. So I think that's less customer service, right? It's not the customer inbounding to us. It's us proactively engaging them, whether you call that sales or something else. And then to your exact question on a customer service perspective, I think one of the hardest things for customer service teams to know is when a customer inbounds, when they're coming into you, should you deflect it or should you handle it? For a long time, the theory was always deflect. That's the wrong way to do it, right? There are many interactions where actually it would be better for the customer and better for the business if you handled it, where we see the data that by helping them with their service interaction and then bouncing that into an interaction about what they want to do next, you're ultimately going to win a customer for life, right? You're going to have much higher customer lifetime value than if you just deflected that to support some random thing. So is there more cost involved in doing that? Of course, but as long as the payback on that investment in service is worth it, then you should keep doing it. And so part of what our platform does is allow you to do A-B testing. See in this certain segment, in this certain situation, when you add more personal touch, does it result in more revenue overall or not? I want to go back a little bit. When you were talking about SoFi and you made the correlation to being able to say, I can see where you are in this process, right? You're, mm-hmm. you're stuck right here. And it, it brought me back to a situation that I just have. We, we bank with Chase and I was having some kind of an issue and, and I was going through the customer service side of things and I had to keep relaying, like I did this and I did this and did this. Right. Like does does your system have the ability to be able to eliminate all of that kind of updating the the customer service representative 
where they can tell, okay, again, like you said, this is where you're stuck at. How can I help? Is that exactly how it works where you can basically go right into where they are, wherever they're struggling? Yes, a part of what we did differently. So this is like a a broader theme. So contact center technology was built for inbound, for support, and again, for deflection. And when you wanted to know about the customer, what it actually do is the system would go pull data back from a separate CRM so that the customer service rep could see a bit of data about the customer. But it was never built to know about the customer. It was built to handle the automation of which calls you handled, which which emails you handled, which you didn't. We built our system differently. From the very beginning, we built to in real time know what was the customer doing on the website? What was happening in every conversation, whoever the conversation was with, like what was happening in every conversation so that we could one, programmatically use both the behavior information and what was happening in the conversation to drive the right next best action. And to your point, so that when you ultimately had an agent on the line, you could have that information. So we call that a unified customer profile. It's, co- it's funny, it's common in marketing tools. So in mar- the marketing team has always had this capability and it's why you, the emails and texts you get, hopefully are getting better and better every year. But it's funny, the, the support team doesn't have, the sales team doesn't have this level of technology. And it's a shame because they're the ones who are actually to your point, engaging directly with the customer. And if they get on with the customer, so your marketing team told me this, and I told that other person that, but you don't seem to know that's not a good customer experience. Yeah. 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 Is this, would you say that this is more for B2B or B2C type applications, both? All B2C. So it's interesting. You, You in theory should do all the same things in B2B. The reality is that in B2B, there's many fewer interactions and the average value is much higher. And so by and large, businesses still count on like having a smart salesperson, a smart CS person who's deciding what to do. And that works in that model for now. In B2C, you could have millions of new customers a month. And on that scale, it's impossible for a human to do it. Just not possible. And the average revenue per customer is lower. So you can't, again, have humans thinking about this. You need programmatic ways of doing this to save you money. It's particularly impactful in these very high velocity, call it 500 to $5,000 price point items. And that's where we focus. With some of the automation, we do have customers who go much lower than that. They might only sell a $100 product, but we don't go after use cases where they're selling a $10 product. doesn't make yeah. sense in that case. Yep. And any specific types of industries? I know you mentioned healthcare and banking, obviously, were a couple of them, but are there other verticals that you specialize in, would you say? Yeah. So basically, all the consumer industries other than retail is one way of thinking about it. The first industry that came online was retail. And it was the easiest, most commoditized. You show a picture, you show a price, you have a review, no problem. But everybody that shops online now expects to have the rest of the life online. And it could be healthcare, insurance, lending, education, local services. That's the majority of it. That's about half of the economy and retail is about half the economy. Yeah, we focus on these more considered or, or more complicated situations where it's going to be more helpful to have that personal touch. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Talk a little bit about even the process of going through and creating a software like this, right? When you guys came up with this idea, what, how were you going through validating the idea? What were some of those first steps to be able to start bringing this thing to fruition from a development standpoint? 
Sure. To the sort of question you're asking, before we ever started even building this, we spent a lot of time with customers. We've run technology teams for years. We could have just gone and built it. And we actually been the customers. We could have just gone and built it, but thank goodness we didn't. We spent time with maybe 200 different customers trying to understand what their pain points were, what the technology stack was that they were using, what they were looking for, what we should build first and what didn't matter as much. And so by the time we actually did put down the sort of pen and start picking up the keyboard to build a product, we had a pretty good idea what it was going to be. Even then, we were building a small amount and then getting in front of customers, building a small amount and getting in front of customers. It has become much easier to build technology. And some people have this ethos of, well, I need to build the first version before I can get in front of anybody. No, you should be embarrassed to some extent when you put it in front of people. That's a good thing. And then you can really get the feedback and see what people care about when they don't. The other thing I always suggest is don't go to your friends at the beginning. Your friends are always going to be polite. They're always going to say it's great and they want to buy it and whatever. Not helpful. Go to have your friends introduce you to somebody, but go to somebody at least one degree away from you because they'll be honest. And let me tell you, if they're not reaching across the table, grabbing you and saying, I need this now, this thing that you have, I eat things that that one, you don't have anything. If they're just saying nice things and whatever, that's not it. That's not a business. You'll know when it's something that they so desperately need because they're willing to buy a product that is really pretty bad and underpowered from you. That's a business, right? When they're willing to pay real money for something that barely works, you've got an opportunity. Yeah, that's interesting. And what, what, how do you deliver that too? When you're going through and doing those customer interviews or where you're showing them, here's our idea. How are you facilitating that kind of conversation, right? Are you putting it right in front of people and then walking them through how it works and then getting that? Or is it more where you're not necessarily trying to, you're trying to not inject any type of bias type conversations in there? What does that look like? Yeah, look, there's a lot of, you can read a lot about how to do user interviews to not inject bias for sure. That's not the beginning. At the beginning is founder-led sales, right? To some extent, it's it, you are injecting bias by definition into it because you're bringing an opinion. And so what you're trying to do is to some extent do a discovery first. So as much as you can pull out from them, what are they using? What are they trying to do? What are their goals? So you, as you talk to a hundred different companies, you can understand what patterns there are and you can understand how they're seeing the world because the same technology could be sold 15 different ways, right? So if you really understand and everyone cares about retention, you can sell for retention. If everyone cares about win back, you can sell for win back. So first of all, do some discovery. And then from there, yeah, I think have some mock-ups or some basic deck that you're walking people through to help them understand uh, you know, what it is that you're suggesting so that you can get the reactions. At the very beginning, you don't need a fully, again, you don't need a fully functioning product. Like some very sort of basic slides will get you pretty far. And you'll understand the mistakes you've made. And you'll have thought that everyone cares about one thing when most care about another. You'll have thought that you could price it one way when you really need to price it a different way. Or everyone has the same objection and you need to figure out how to handle that objection. I don't think you have to go become an expert in user interviews to go and do this. Okay. Okay. Excellent. And then you obviously... I'm assuming you went and got funding for this then too, right? So all of this stuff trickles down into the the funding side of things. 
how did you present all of these findings, right? Because you, I'm assuming again, you went, interviewed your 200 people. Here's all of the, the things that we learned throughout that Mr. Funding guy. We've got our, our prospective customers here. They all said this. What did that deliverable look like? How did you organize all of that? How did you say, this is our, the most hot button issue or the, the, the thing that everybody's asking for? Was there any way that you figured out to be able to deliver that or condense all that information so that number one, you guys could utilize all of the stuff that you're, that you're gathering, but also you can present it to other people who might want to see that as well. Yeah. So we had our own sort of notes from all this stuff, like from every call notes and what was going on. And so we aggregated it. If I'm being really honest, that wasn't the thing that was needed for us, at least when we went and raised money. I'm not saying that for everybody, that's the case. If you have a very nice doc and people don't understand the market and they want to read your notes, like that could be very helpful. Um, but yeah, for us, it wasn't really the thing. Like once we'd had understood all that. We distilled it all down into a deck that was 10 slides long or something. And that's really what we discussed with investors where they were trying to understand <coughs> for, for a lot of them, they were trying to understand this customer segment because it wasn't one that they understood. Like they understood the support segment. This was a little different. It was more sales and B2C companies. They were trying to understand how differentiated a product we could build because there's lots of contact center solutions out there. And was this going to be one 401 of the contact center solutions or was there something different? And ultimately, if we started succeeding, what was going to happen? Were the other people just going to step in and do this because it was so easy? Or were we going to be able to build a real differentiated company uh, in this space? And ultimately, were we the team that they thought could do it, let's just say. So that was more the stuff we were answering. I think it helped that we had done all these sort of interviews because we could go and introduce them to specific customers and we could answer what customers wanted because of that. But we didn't ever have to produce a piece of work and say, here's the, here's the doc. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how did you end up securing your investment? Did you use some type of a firm? Was this just an introductions? that you got two different investors, like talk through that, that capital raising effort. How do sure. You First of all, 99% of businesses should not be venture backed. And that's something people forget. They see the news, they see fundraising, they go, oh, that looks great. It's not right for most businesses. The only businesses that should be venture backed are ones that are very high growth and ones that are enormously, call it, for one reason or another, there's a, a lot of profit in the future. So it's worth spending dollars today, you know, losing money today because there's so much profit in the future. And the lower the interest rates, the, the lower the profit needs to be in the future. But by, by and large, the profit just needs to be very high. Low margin business or one that doesn't have a lasting differentiation, even if it is high growth, are not going to be good businesses to be venture back. So start there. If you are in the category of very high growth and with lots of profit in the future, I think you should still ask yourself if it's what you want. The second that you raise money, you don't own the whole company anymore and there's other people with different interests involved. And so make sure that it's what you actually want to do. It also changes the potential outcomes, right? If you don't raise any money and somebody says, here's 10 million for your business, you now made 10 million. If you raise 10 million and somebody says, here's 10 million for your business, you make zero. So really think about what it is 
that you want as an outcome. And if you want a smaller outcome, it might be, even though it could be venture backed, don't do it. Now that's it. If you're in the group that could be venture backed and you want it to be, never ever use a firm to introduce you ever, period. End of statement. I don't know how else to put it. Yes, there is such a thing as an investment bank. And like when you get to the point where you're going public, investment banks can be important and play a role there. But short of that, you should never use somebody to fundraise. It's a terrible signal to investors. What you should be doing is either taking somebody who's a friend and you helping them, having them help you get introductions, or you should be doing research of investors to figure out who already believes the thing you believe and is just looking for a company to invest in. If you're just emailing lots of people, even if they do respond, it's not going to go well. If you're talking to people and you're trying to convince them of your point of view, it's not going to go well. Find the investors that already have done research in the area, agree that you're right, and are just looking for the team to back. That's where it's going to be easiest. Within that, there's obviously a lot written now about different ways of raising, whether it's safes or price rounds, the board construction should look like, what the deal construction should look like. So that's a whole separate conversation. But yeah, I think once you have raised money, the clock starts and there's an expectation of much higher growth. Mm -hmm. And for you guys, what type of, I guess, expectations do you have for your growth trajectory right now? Is it, what is that growth trajectory? When do you think that you're going to achieve it moving forward? Yeah, we're lucky. We've grown very quickly over time. Again, depends on the fund you're raising from, but take a very standard, relatively early stage fund of $100 million. More or less, this is like really rough math. They're looking for at least one company to return the full fund, at least one. That means that whatever, a couple million dollars they put into one company for call it 15%, more or less, is going to have to be worth $100 million one day. Let's just do the math. They need the company to exit for some 650 or $700 million in order for that to happen. And if they're investing a couple million per company, maybe that means they get, I don't know, 30 companies they can invest in. So one of the 30 needs to get there. So that's the, the framework of their, for their success, right? What they're looking for. And so that's what they're going to push you to do. Now, that's not necessarily, I, well, I hope you've only taken their money if you agree that's your sign of success and you want to do the same thing. There are sometimes mismatches between the two and that creates problems. In this market, if you think that companies are worth six times their current ARR in SaaS, that means you'd have to be at $100 million in revenue to get that outcome. So that's, let's say, the bar for that size fund. Now, depending on the size fund and what the mechanics are, there could be different outcomes they're looking for, but it's something everybody should be very clear on when they take money. Ask your investors, if you don't know, what is their expectation? What do they want to have happen? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. How about getting your first customers on board? What did that look like for you? Where again, you were, you had this idea, you, you finally developed everything. You had your MVP or what have you. Did you go back to those same people that you had interviewed earlier and use them to essentially launch your product or what, how did that go to market strategy? If you will, how did that look originally? Yeah, we definitely went to some of them. A lot of them were not the right customers. We're looking for other things didn't want what we were selling. So we narrowed it down people who were the right customers and focused on selling them a product. And so I think within that group of a few hundred, there were probably, I don't know, 
10 or 20 that were right to be early customers. And the fact, me and my co-founder alone probably sold the first 3 million in AR before we hired a single salesperson. And about that point is when we started hiring salespeople. And if anything, we were probably a little late in hiring salespeople and should have hired them a bit earlier in the process. But, but yeah, I think that's about, you want the first couple million in AR to be founder led, hopefully from the people that you've gotten to know that have told you that they want the product and then you can go from there. Yeah. You touched on something that's interesting to me and I've seen companies that I feel make this mistake where the founders don't necessarily want to put the effort into doing specific types of things. To me personally, I think it's best like to, to uh, your exact point that you just made, get the founders in there and, and you should be willing to go out and try and test everything and make sure that these things are working the way that you expect them to work. There's the other mentality of maybe we already have funding now, so let's just go ahead and hire somebody out for that, right? Rather than getting in there and testing it yourself first. What are your thoughts on hiring a professional, hiring someone who has experience in that particular thing versus jumping in and starting that process as the founder first? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, hiring a sales leader too early is symptomatic of, you know, two things. So one, some founders don't want to sell. It's not their job. It's not their thing. And that, that could different versions of that. That's like a, a very bad situation because no one else is going to know how to do it. If you can't do it, they're just not going to figure out how to do it. I think it's the other thing that's symptomatic of sometimes is the belief that the product will sell itself. And it's just not true. Uh, there are a couple of very rare instances of particularly network effect businesses where the product does sell itself, but that's the rarity. 99% of businesses go to market motion and distribution is what makes a business successful, not the product. You can't have a bad product. I'm not suggesting you should have a bad product, but distribution beats technology all day long in these businesses. It's not good enough to say the product will sell itself. And if you're hiring somebody thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter who they are because the product is going to sell itself, you're setting yourself up for failure. Yeah, net, it's not something you want to see when somebody's doing that very early. Now, there are exceptions to every rule, right? So if you're a highly technical founder and you need to bring in effectively a co-founder who's going to be your sales leader from the beginning, cool, fine. They're effectively a founder. But what you don't want to do is bring in a, a junior person who's not going to be able to figure it out on their own and set them off and you know under resource them and, and you're going to make them fail. That's not good for them or for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. What were some of the the things that you were not expecting when you were going down this path, launching a, a SaaS product, a software product? Does anything come to mind like I that that really stands out as being something that was unexpected in that in that path, good or bad, if it's on the positive side of things or the negative side of things. Anything come yeah. to mind? Yeah, well, look, we've been lucky. So there's gonna be fewer unexpected things than in other businesses because we've been lucky. Still, we knew going in that it would be a roller coaster, but it's always surprising when this stuff happens. When you think smooth sailing, everything's going great, and you get bad news. Like it, that's never fun. And there's always those unexpected things that happen. Just know that it's going to be the case and success is going to be dependent on you sticking it, sticking through it when bad things happen. First of all, know that the unexpected will happen. 
Other than that, I think a couple things come to mind. One is we were not SaaS savvy before this, like we hadn't run SaaS businesses. So there was a huge learning process around SaaS. Good ways and bad. Some of the things that were taken as gospel, we didn't know. And so didn't know to make that, those mistakes. And in other situations, we probably took extra time to learn things that we didn't need to because it had already been established. Take that both ways. And then I think like in terms of the surprise side, I think in a good way, like we have found people that are very excited about the business and have done things and carried it forward in ways we could never imagine. And that's the most fun where there's people that join the company where they make their mark on the business, not because of what we did, but because they had passion for this and saw a new way of doing it. Yeah. So are you saying like the people are utilizing it in ways that you hadn't necessarily thought of less that more just like existing employees are pushing the business forward in ways that we hadn't necessarily thought of very cool yeah and i i guess that's where i was like typically there's some type of definition there this is what it's for so that's cool that there's enough ubiquity to the product where they can reach into different areas or the software is flexible enough to be able to reach into different areas and impact different things so that's that's interesting I'm curious from my own perspective, as a customer, you know, coming to you guys, what types of information do, would we need to be able to provide into this, into the system so that it can tie into our current systems too, right? Is there like APIs that essentially our systems would tie into or how, what does that look like that integration? Yeah. So first of all, this is relatively new technology and as often happens with new technology, we don't serve smallest, the smallest businesses because they need something much more distilled down and understood. We tend to serve mid-market and enterprise companies that have the ability to invest in this and figure out how it works for their business. Within mid-market and enterprise, we're looking for people that have, to what I said before, a more complicated product or service they're selling. It's worth a little bit more money. So they're making a couple hundred dollars, at least an annual lifetime value from that customer. We're looking for companies that have already made the transition, what's called an event-driven system, meaning they already have a way of saying, it, when the customer does this on the site, I'm going to send it somewhere. Often the, the, the companies are doing it for email first, and we're just piggybacking on that same infrastructure, use what they're sending their email systems to also be sent to, to Regal. If they haven't done that, there's a little bit more work. So you're asking then physically how the integration works. There's a lot of different ways to send us data. There's not only one way. There are APIs, there's native integrations, there's webhooks, whatever. But one way or another, we have to get the information about the customer to be able to then use that to generate intent data and drive the right moments for the calls, texts, and emails, the right scripts in each of those, in those moments. Can we be operated without it? So like... Often we'll get companies that are today, let's say calling three times a day for three days and they see our tech and they go, oh, your tech is so much better. We want to use Regal. And we go, okay, what do you want to do on Regal? And they go, well, we want to call them three times a day for three days. I go, guys, yeah, sure, our tech is better. But if you do exactly the same thing on our system that you did on the old one, the outcome is going to be the same. It doesn't matter that our tech is better if you don't do anything differently for the customer. And they go, oh, yeah, 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 you're right, you're right. We'll do something different. You have to be willing to change the way you're engaging with customers in addition to changing your technology provider, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it does. It does. And, and I, I actually, I'm interested on the event 
Uh, how did you call it? The Avengers. Uh, so the old way, of, yeah, the, if you remember, I don't know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, the, what businesses used to do is they'd say, okay, let's make a list of all the people who didn't buy from us and let's send them all the same exact email. And okay, that was a thing. And then what's happened since then in email marketing is that they've gotten smarter and smarter. Oh, if you clicked on this button and then you did this thing and you left in your cart for two more seconds than we know you needed to, in that second, you'll get an email or text saying, hey, Bob, what's going on? So they're getting very smart in marketing about what to do. We're just using that same technology in a conversational context, in customer support and sales, where we're able to, again, instead of using a list of people that we think are eligible, we treat each individual differently, uniquely. And the, uh, apologize for the metaphor. My best metaphor is goosebumps, choose your own adventure. So depending on what the customer chooses, the experience they get is different. So they're not all treated the same. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and uh, obviously you're dealing with larger enterprise companies. Would you say that the majority of these companies have already made this leap or is this something new for them even where they might be a little bit more behind the times and in marketing, they almost all have made this leap. So the transition was from very old school marketing systems like Oracle or something into the more modern systems like exact target, which is now Salesforce marketing cloud or Braze or iterable or customer.io. These are more modernized. Yeah. And for SMB customers, it might be something like Clavio, like again, where they're using that event driven methodology to do something. It's just, it's not come to every team and it's a shame that it hasn't. And the reason it, it's taken longer to come to sales and support is that sales and support, there's not one person to change, right? In marketing, there's one person designing the emails. You switch to a new user, they're using a new system, no problem. Sales and support, there's hundreds of agents in the system. So even if the admin could easily understand a new system, you have to have all the agents change over. And so the rate of change is a little bit slower in these customer service and sales systems. And it's created problems for the companies and problems for the end users. Part of our message broadly is, look, if you're doing contact center software, if you're using contact center software for years, you've been told, oh, the big important thing is to switch from on-prem to the cloud. And maybe there's this narrative of like voices dying. And we're going to say, cool, cloud is like not enough of a value proposition. Like you need to switch to a system in the cloud that is actually helping you do something special for your customers. And like on a side note, voice is not dead. Customers actually do appreciate the level of service you give them. Love learning from people who have already done these types of things before. We have a couple of startups right now where we're trying to bring on some of our first customers. And again, Alex has had tremendous, tremendous success doing that. If you want to learn more about Alex, go ahead and check him out on LinkedIn. Uh, or if you want to go to their website, that is regal.io. And you can also email Alex using his email address at hello at regal.io. And once again, don't forget, if you are a business owner looking to grow your net worth, we do exactly that. Come check us out at investinsquarefeet.com. Again, investinsquarefeet.com.